Uh, Heavenly Father, as we try to wrap up the discussion of a really hard passage from Second Thessalonians, be with us and help us. And um, we pray for humility. Um, sometimes we come to your word and, and we have to acknowledge that there are things that confuse us and we don't fully understand. And so um, we pray that some of these hard passages and, and hard things, you would give us the humility to hold them with open hands and not to major on minors. But we do pray as well that you would help us to understand them and uh, get a better grasp of the mystery of your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on Thursday, we talked about Second Thessalonians 2. We talked about this fellow called the man of lawlessness. So uh, I think the way that we had the board kind of set up was we had the man of lawlessness and some bullet points about him, right? Who was here on Thursday? About half of you guys, at least. All right. So um, as we read through Second Thessalonians 2, um, what were some things we learned about the man of lawlessness? He exalts himself over two things. Over what? He exalts himself over every object of worship. Yeah. Over every object of worship. He took his seat for it. Says he takes his seat in the temple. Yeah, he uh, takes his seat in whose temple? God's temple. Yeah, which is a really, um, really important point, isn't it? Um, that's a strange thing for him to do. Does that remind you of anything else that we've read about in the New Testament, by the way? Somebody who, you remember Jesus's sermon about the temple where he was they were like wow look how awesome the temple is and then he was he said what yeah he all the disciples are like look how awesome the temple is and then jesus is like it's all gonna be wrecked and then they're like when will this happen and he starts talking about wars and rumors of war and all of this different stuff and then um he makes this point about whenever you see the something of desolation yeah, being done in the in the temple, right? So it's kind of similar language to that. But he exalts himself over every object of worship. He takes his seat in God's temple. Did we learn anything else about him? Yeah, he proclaims himself as God. Uh, he claims to be divine, right? Um, but it talks about in Second Thessalonians, which is written. Second um, Thessalonians is maybe um, sometime in the mid to late fifties, early sixties, whenever it's being written. All right, we know that that it, it's around that time because Paul dies in the mid sixties. So uh, it's it's maybe late fifties, early sixties. And has the man of lawlessness come on the scene yet, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2? Why not? Because the dude is holding him back. Yeah, it talks about, what word does it use? He. Okay, it, there is a he uh, that is holding him back, but what word does it actually use in verse 6? Yeah, um, the man of lawlessness is on, not on the scene yet. There is a restrainer. Uh, 
there's someone who is restraining him. And we did mention last week that twice in the text, this restrainer is called a he. And it talks about how the restrainer, it says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So has the man of lawlessness been revealed? No, not yet revealed. But he's already, yeah, but already at work. And it says um, in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So there is a he who is restraining the man of lawlessness, but this he who is restraining the man of lawlessness will one day be, and the text says, out of the way. So we talked about, you know, some people try to say that the restrainer who is holding back the man of lawlessness is God. Why would that be a little bit of a weird position to take? Yeah, he one day is, is taken out of the way, all right? But we know that God remains forever. Uh, some people have said that maybe it's like this special um, acting of God's grace that holds the man of lawlessness back, and one day God will take that grace away. But what would be difficult with that view? The restrainer is called a he. So it's not just like some acting or some working or some power. It's, an, it's, a, it's a he figure. It really sounds like the restrainer is a what? Person or spiritual. Yeah, sounds like he's a person. Sounds like, um, even if he's like a spiritual power, like an angel or something, there's still kind of this weird idea of he's, he's being taken out of the way, right? Uh, being taken out of the way kind of sounds like what's happening. Yeah, dying, something like that. Um, so, it, I mean, I think the most natural reading to this would be that the restrainer really sounds like a, like a person. And there is some individual, when did we say Thessalonians is written? Uh, no, maybe late 50s, early 60s. And sounds like Paul's saying there's some guy who is restraining the man of lawlessness, but after that guy's gone the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And he'll exalt himself over every object of worship. He'll take his seat in God's temple. He'll proclaim himself to be God. So Paul really kind of seems like he sees the man of lawlessness as what kind of reality? Immediate or distant? Yeah, but then, uh, if we read the text, there are some difficulties with that as well. What would be a difficulty with reading this guy as like a really immediate reality for Paul? What is he's not yet revealed himself. Yeah, just because of the restrainer, and then he will. He's already at work, though, right? Which, I mean, that's a really interesting phrase. If it's a really distant reality, you know, if this is talking about a figure, you know, 2,000 years after Paul, how is he already at work? Uh, how is the mystery of lawlessness already at work? Um, what would be some difficulties in the text with um, seeing this guy as an immediate threat, though? How does he die? By the appearance of Jesus' coming. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Um, uh, destroyed 
by the appearance of Jesus' coming. I'm assuming that's second coming, not first, right? I mean, it would at least, yeah, I mean, it could be the first coming, right? It couldn't be like Jesus' death, resurrection coming because Paul's writing after this. So we would at least initially really want to read that as a second coming uh, type of statement, especially because... um, you know, early in the text, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together with him. So it says that he is killed by the breath of Jesus' mouth and brought to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Um, so he's destroyed by the appearance of Jesus' coming. Um, someone read uh, verses 9 and 10 for us really quickly as well. So who is the lawless one empowered by? Satan. Yeah, he's Satan empowered. And what does he do in that part of the text? He signs, wonders, delusions, right? Um, He leads people away, leads people astray from truth. All right. So we ended on Thursday by talking about really how there's these Two perspectives on how to interpret um, 2 Thessalonians 2. And the one that, you know, a lot of people are familiar with is um, you've got um, you've got basically this. Uh, what a lot of people are going to do with this text is they're going to try to see the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist from 1 John, and the beast from Revelation as all one figure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to show you as we go through 1 John and Revelation what some difficulties with that would be. Because is this guy in this text called Beast or Antichrist? No. no. And Antichrist in 1 John is not called Man of Lawlessness or Beast. And Beast, you know the book of Revelation actually doesn't have the word Antichrist in it. That, that language is from First and Second John, and people pull it over into Revelation sometimes. But what a lot of people do is they say, okay, Paul's writing this in, uh, you know, 50 or 60 AD, and what he's doing is he's looking forward all the way to the second coming of Christ, and he's telling the Thessalonians, the second coming of Christ can't happen yet because... The man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed, but the man of lawlessness is revealed about right there. And then uh, the second coming of Christ happens shortly afterwards. So there, um, the, the first position on 2 Thessalonians 2, we could call it futurist. It would still be in the future for us. You know, maybe we're living, I mean, we don't really know when Christ is returning, but we, maybe we're living right there. You know, and the, the, the lawless one is still someone who is to come, and he comes very closely to the second coming. And the lawless one is equated in this view with the Antichrist and with the beast. Um, what would be strengths of this position? Seeing the lawless one, like, right there. What does that make sense of in the text? The appearance of Jesus Yeah, the strength would be... Uh, it can make a lot of sense of this statement right here. 
All right, he's really close to the second coming of Christ, and because he's supposed to be destroyed by the appearance of Jesus' coming. Um, what in the text does this position not make very good sense of? The restrainer? Yeah, usually people who take this view really have to do something where they say the restrainer is like the Holy Spirit or is God or something. But we've already talked about why that's not a very clear reading of the text, right? That's a really difficult reading of the text. What else does this position maybe not make sense of in the text? That he's already at work. Yeah, he's already at work. Um, even though he's not revealed himself, according to Second Thessalonians 2, Paul's writing in the 50s or 60s and is saying the guy's already at work. So that would be something hard to make sense of. Usually this position would say um, there's kind of like the big man of lawlessness, but then there's like smaller men of lawlessness that kind of like build up to it. So they would try to explain it as um, Paul saying, you know, there's already kind of little men of lawlessness, and this will ultimately climax with the big man of lawlessness, which is over here. Um, I'm not sure I really buy that, because does this text talk about one man of lawlessness or many? One. One, one right? So trying to say, um, you know, that's, that's the explanation. I, that's a little bit of a stretch, I think. What else, what's the really big thing in this text that um, this view does not really make good sense of? We've talked about the restrainer. We've talked about he's already at work. What else? Yeah, this would be kind of the really big one. He's supposed to take his seat in God's temple. Um, is the temple still standing today? No. When is it destroyed? 70 AD. Uh, the temple is destroyed. And so if you take this sort of a position of, of 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, you usually teach that sometime... Like, if the man of lawlessness is right there and the second coming is right there, sometimes, like, right there, there's a new temple that gets rebuilt. Um, is it possible that in the future, Jerusalem could have a new temple built in it? Yeah. That's possible. Um, what would be difficult with this text, though, is that the temple is supposed to belong to who? God. God. And according to the New Testament, um, is there still a need for a brick-and-mortar temple? No. Why? We are the temple. And especially if that temple had, you know, animal sacrifices again, would that be a good thing? No. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. So if there was a new temple built in Jerusalem that was called, you know, the house of God, would we expect that God's presence was really there? Because God's presence, spirit, um, his spirit fills those who are believers in Christ. And if there were sacrifices being offered in that temple, would we expect that God was pleased with those? So if there was another temple built right here and those things happened, would you really in any real sense be able to call it God's temple? What would it be? Yeah, false temple, some sort of idolatry. So this is a really tough phrase for this position because the temple's destroyed in 70. And so, uh, you know, for there to be a God's temple, um, it seems like this man of lawlessness would need to have appeared when? Before the destroying of the temple. Yeah, sometime around 70, about a decade after Paul's writing this letter.
Which leads us into our second view. Our second view, we, if we're calling this one futurist, because the man of lawlessness is still out ahead of us, we could call this one um, historicist. The man of lawlessness is a historical figure. He's already come. So here we have Paul writing in the 50s or 60s. And over here we have the second coming, the end of history. And there are some people that because of the difficulties we've just talked about with the text, would put the coming of the man of lawlessness about right here, around 70 AD, around the time when the temple is destroyed. And so Paul is looking to a very immediate threat in the very immediate future. All right? Um, So let's do the same thing we just did. What in the text does this view make really good sense of? Yeah, okay, this view makes really good sense of this difficult phrase about the temple. All right, it would make good sense about that. The man of lawlessness is someone who maybe is tied up with the destruction of the temple. He commits some sort of sacrilege in the temple. But this is all happening before the temple is destroyed in in 70. So it could make really good sense of that. What else could it make really good sense of? Yeah, it could make really good sense of the restrainer. um, The idea that whoever this man of lawlessness is, there's some human being that's in the way of him committing this blasphemy in the temple. Um, We'll talk about some theories with that in just a minute. Uh, So it could make good sense of the restrainer. Actually, let me go ahead and tell you uh, how this view usually understands the restrainer and the man of lawlessness. Because we're saying in this view, um, the man of lawlessness is a historical figure. The way that um, this is typically going to be understood in a historicist point of view is that uh, the man of lawlessness is... Titus. Um, This is not the Titus that we have mentioned in the Bible. There's a Titus who is a pastor in the Bible. Different Titus. All right? Um, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. right? Um, The the Titus that's being mentioned here um, that some people see as the man of lawlessness, he's a general who eventually will become the Roman emperor. And the way that the history goes is um, around 67 AD, Rome goes to war against the Jewish nation. And um, the emperor at the time is Nero. And Nero sends one of his best generals, whose name is Vespasian, to fight against Jerusalem and the Jews. Eventually, Nero dies. And Rome is asking who is like our best leader, who should we look to, and they choose Vespasian in order to be the new emperor, and he makes his son Titus his general, and his understanding there is when Nero died, they took Nero's general, which was me, so whenever I die, they'll probably take whoever my general is, so I'm going to make that my son, so that he'll then get the emperorship. Titus is the one who actually breaks the walls of Jerusalem down, goes into the city. He's the one who destroys the temple. But before he does that, by the way, um, what do Roman leaders usually consider themselves to be? Gods. Gods Gods who are worthy of worship. 
So we have some of that language there. Um, this is a little bit graphic, but I'm just going to tell you what happens whenever Titus breaks into the temple. He takes the official Torah scroll, and he hires a prostitute, and he has sex with her on top of it. Oh. Man of... What is the Torah, by the way? The law. The law. So does it make sense to call Titus the man of lawlessness in light of that story? It does, right? So um, Titus, um, you know, he definitely desecrates the temple. Um, and uh, it, it makes sense um, why he's being called the man of lawlessness in light of what he does to the Torah scroll. All right. So who is the restrainer then? Who is the one that's holding Titus back? Whenever Paul wrote this letter, Nero was not emperor yet, and Nero is the one who starts what? The Jewish-Roman War, which eventually leads to Titus being the general who leads into the city. The emperor before Nero was named Claudius. Now, at this point in history... Um, Greek is the common language of the common people in the Roman Empire. What is the stately governmental language? Latin. Latin. All right. If you look at the word restrainer in Latin, which, what is Paul writing it in? Greek. He's writing it in Greek. But if you were to translate it over into Latin, the, the Latin word restrainer is Claudia. At this point in history, Claudius is on the throne, but one day he's going to be out of the way, and then who's going to be emperor? Nero. And what is Nero going to start? The war. The war, which eventually leads to Titus doing uh, the destruction of the temple and desecrating the temple. Now, this viewpoint, um, a lot of people look at it and they say, well, that's kind of weak because you're taking a Greek word, you know, um, Paul's writing exclusively in Greek, and then he's, um, you know, you're saying, well, if you translated this into Latin, then you would see that it was this. And a lot of people say, you know, that's kind of weak. It would be stronger if he just like threw in a Latin word right there for his wordplay. What we're going to see is that um, the... Um, Especially in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle is writing against the Roman Empire in several different places. And he doesn't just come out and say, Emperor so-and-so is bad. He comes up with nicknames or something along those lines for the people that he's talking about. Why might he do that? So he doesn't get arrested, so he doesn't get arrested or, or, or killed. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah did the exact same thing whenever he talked about Babylon. All right? It was dangerous for him to publish material that was explicitly critical of Babylon. So what he did is there is a, there's a device in the um, Hebrew language where um, you basically split your alphabet in half. And you kind of you go like this. Like you would be going A, B, C, D, all the way on. And then you circle back, and you would do like Z, Y, what would come next? X. X. 
x, w, and you use um, like these correlate. So if I wanted to say um, ba, ba, I would actually put yz or something like that. So in the book of Jeremiah, there are places where he uses that device to talk about Babylon, where a Hebrew would know he's talking about Babylon, but a Babylonian would not. It's being cryptic, right? So um, people have pointed out that for Paul to do something like this with the word restrainer and the name Claudius is not totally out of bounds. Um, he's a Jewish person. He knows that, uh, you know, this sort of literary device. And so he uses this at times. Jeremiah uses this at times. We're going to see that the Apostle John uses this at times. So this is another place where maybe we would see that the historicist view has a strength, has a point. Now, what is the difficulty with the historicist view? Yeah, the man of lawlessness is destroyed by the appearance of Jesus' coming. Uh, does Jesus return in the days of Titus? No. 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 So, if Titus is the man of lawlessness, how do we explain that verse? Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, you guys just kind of pause for a second. Which of these views, um, okay, we don't have all the answers at this point in class, all right? We've talked about strengths for both sides and weaknesses for both sides, correct? Um, which one would you... If you just had to guess at this point, you see strengths and weaknesses of both sides, but if you had to guess at this point, which one would you want to cast your lot in with? Probably historicist. Why? Because it explains the temple mm -hmm. more so, and has better things about the restrainer. The only thing that's weird is that Jesus is coming. Okay. But that's a pretty big weird thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, maybe he like believes in We've seen that Paul doesn't, though, right? Uh, so, okay, so Grace as historicist, a couple of other people did too. Anybody feel like futurist? I mean, to a certain extent, yes, because, like, what if the man of lawlessness is, like, Satan or someone? Because, like... I think Satan empowered. Yeah, yeah he's Satan empowered, but it's not Satan himself, right? What if it's, like, one of his little demons that he's, you know? I mean, everything in the text really sounds like this is a dude, though, right? Well, if it's a dude, we possess him a dude. I mean, that is possible, it's but like, it's still a dude, it's, right? We are God's temple, so if, like, a demon possesses us, they're taking their seat in God's temple. Yeah. 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 Can believers be possessed, though? I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. When you talk to us about demons, you should call them a Oh. So, so, so you're saying I'm so possessed. Wow. I am the man. No, um, I don't think that's right. I hope that's not right. That would be a bad thing. Um, I try really hard not to be. So, 
Okay. Prayer and fasting. Thank you. I mean, at the end of the day, he's the what of lawlessness, man, right? So, um, you know, definitely, same thing with like Judas, right? Judas is spurned on by the work of Satan. This guy's spurned on by the work of Satan. So, um, but uh, it, it is a it is a human being. Okay. Paul. Verse. Some translations, instead of calling him the man of lawlessness, call him the man of sin. Right? So, here is. Here is how I would go about doing this. Um. Let's read through the text one more time. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he starts off and he says, hey, I want you guys to know that the day of the Lord, the second coming, has not happened yet. Because remember, there are some people who have been saying it's not a physical return of Jesus. It's like the spiritual return of Jesus. And Paul says, I want you to know that that's not true. Uh, The second coming has not occurred yet. He goes on and he says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So he's saying right there, the second coming of Christ will not happen until the man of lawlessness comes. Now, can both of these views account for that? Yes. Yeah, because he could be saying it'll be the man of lawlessness coming and then kind of immediately Christ returns. Or he could be speaking to Thessalonians in the 50s and 60s and saying, hey, you've got to know the man of lawlessness isn't coming yet, or the second coming isn't happening yet because the man of lawlessness hasn't come yet. And in this, in this view, does the second coming still happen after the man of lawlessness? Yeah, yeah. Paul doesn't say anything about the length of time between man of lawlessness and Jesus yet. He just says what he says. So I will go ahead and tell you, a lot of people in the futurist view, in the beginning of the text, try to make it out that, like, this is exactly what's happening. But just notice Paul doesn't say that, right? He, he doesn't talk anything about the amount of time between the man of lawlessness and Christ's return. He goes on and describes him in verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. (coughs) Excuse me. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So the restrainer goes away. Then the lawless one comes, comma, whom the Lord Jesus will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So notice that Paul's doing something kind of chronologically interesting there. Restrainer is gone. In that verse, 
says in, in verse 8, um, then, after the restrainer is gone, then the lawless one appears. And then it describes the lawless one as someone that the Lord Jesus kills by the breath of his mouth and brings to nothing. at the appearance of his coming. I think the way to understand this verse, to make it fit with the historicist perspective, is to talk about an idea that we find in the Bible that no one ever talks about. It's a biblical concept that a lot of people have never learned and have never talked about before. And I want you to flip over right now, to Revelation 20. Um, I'm going to read... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over a portion and then, and then uh, go on. Um, in chapter 20 of Revelation, it says in verse 5, the rest of the dead, or hold on, let's skip back just a little bit. Um, starting in verse 4, there's a lot here that we're not paying attention to yet. All right. There's only one part of these te- of, the, of the text that I'm going to read that I really want us to focus on right now. So let's not get distracted by all the other details. Verse four, it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what type of people came to life? Believers. Believers. And it's talking about their souls, but then it says that they came to life, which means, what, what doctrine is this teaching us about? The resurrection. the resurrection. So believers are raised from the dead. Believers are resurrected here. Verse 5, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the end of the thousand years. What does that tell you? Is it only believers that are resurrected? No. No. What other group is resurrected? Who are the rest of the dead? Believers are resurrected. And then it says, no one else was resurrected for a thousand years. Right? It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's talking about believers. And then verse 5, the rest of the dead, which that would be talking about who? unbelievers, the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. Okay? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Skip over to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged written uh, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So death and Hades give up what? For a, for a moment. All of their dead which is a reference to unbelievers, and then those unbelievers stand before the throne of God, and they receive judgment, and then they, with death and Hades, are thrown where? In the lake of fire. Lake of fire. The idea that's being presented here is that all people, believers and unbelievers, experience a resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of believers then they're ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection of unbelievers, their souls are reunited with their bodies, and then they're ushered where? To the lake of fire, right? So we, we've talked about this idea before that for believers, we have this idea that we die, our bodies stay here, our souls go to heaven. And then our souls come back when Christ returns, they reanimate our bodies, and we live forever in the new creation. The opposite side of that is that the scriptures teach that for unbelievers, their souls go to Hades. And then, whenever Christ returns, their souls reanimate their bodies, and then it's lake of fire. So, bringing that information with us back to 2 Thessalonians 2, how does that help to explain the text? The restrainer is, made, is, is pushed out of the way. The man of lawlessness appears. All right. Notice that there's a really tight time transition. The restrainer is removed, then the lawless one appears. And then all the text says is the lawless one will be killed by the breath of Jesus' mouth whenever he appears with his coming. All right. How does that help explain 2 Thessalonians 2? That the men of lawlessness will reappear during the second or the first resurrection and then be thrown into the lake of fire by Jesus. Yeah, I, I think that's what it's driving at. Notice, it, look at the text for a second and you'll be able to see this. Notice in verse 8 where there is a, a time word and where there is not a time word. Verse 8 um, or actually, go back to verse 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. The restrainer goes away. Immediately, the lawless one comes. You see that? Continuing on in that same verse, uh, then the lawless one will be revealed, comma, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Notice that it doesn't say, then the lawless one will be revealed, then Jesus will come back and kill him. Is there any sort of a, of a tight connection, tight chronology connection, between the lawless one appearing and the return of Christ? Instead, it's only a description that one day Jesus will do what to this guy? Kill him and bring him to nothing and destroy him and judge him. Because is the lawless one uh, presented here as like a, a good guy or a bad guy? Bad. Really bad guy. 
And so the promise is this guy doesn't get away with what he does. Christ will judge him. But notice that it is so easy to read this text as saying, the revealer is removed, then the man of lawlessness will appear, then Jesus will kill him. When really all it says is, the restrainer will be removed, then the man of lawlessness will come, but know that Jesus is going to judge this guy. All right? We're going to be really tempted to read it that first way. When really all the text is saying is the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And just so you know, Jesus is going to destroy this guy. And is it going to be hard for Jesus to destroy this guy? No, he's going to destroy him. He's going to kill him. He's going to bring him nothing just by the word of his mouth whenever Jesus appears. But notice that it doesn't necessarily tie the appearance of Jesus to the appearance of the man of lawlessness in any tight way right? That's something that it's easy to read into the text, but it's not something the text actually says, which is really a good principle for reading the Bible, isn't it? Is it easy to read things into the text sometimes? If we slow down and read and we just pay attention to what it's actually saying, does it sometimes give us a very different perspective? Yeah, it really, really does. I think that that is the way to understand this. Um, I interpret this to be Titus and the restrainer to be Claudius and that this man of lawlessness will appear on the scene very shortly. These Thessalonians, they're afraid that the second coming has already happened and maybe they've missed out, that maybe the hope that they have of a physical return of Christ is misplaced. And Paul comes in and goes, no, 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 you have to know, I've already taught you this before, you have to know that Christ won't return before the man of lawlessness appears. Man of lawlessness appears here, and of course Christ still today has not returned, but Paul doesn't necessarily link those things as tightly as we're tempted to assume that he does in this text. A close reading of, of, of the text leads to a lot of clarity on that issue. So you guys have questions on that, or does that make pretty decent sense to you guys? I think the man of lawlessness is Titus, okay. who you know commits the atrocities in the temple. Yeah, because Claudius is keeping the uh, Nero, Vespasian, Titus regime off the throne, right? Claudius isn't really a good guy either, but comparatively, he's a lot better than those three. He didn't, like, do anything majorly in the temple. I don't think so. I think uh, everything, everything with the Jewish-Roman war happens after Claudius. I don't think Claudius is, like, particularly nice to them, but... I don't really think he's, yeah, he doesn't start a war. Um, So, all right, it's 9.55, so you guys can head on out. Make sure to read 1 Timothy tonight, and we'll uh, we'll come to class tomorrow to discuss.